In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today is the second Sunday of the blessed month of Amshir. The Gospel today comes to us from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. Last week we also read from the same chapter. Next week we'll be reading from the same chapter. As you know, the Gospel um, of John, chapter 6, begins with the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes, and then it develops into the Bread of Life discourse, and then the Lord speaks to us about the Eucharist as that being the true bread of life which comes down from heaven. So we see for sure in the gospel this morning that the miracle of the multitudes, which is one of the great miracles our Lord performed, it's the only miracle that's mentioned by all four of the evangelists, is pointing us to the, the wondrous act of the Eucharist. So we want to meditate a little bit this morning on this whole idea of miracles, to understand why the Lord performed miracles, and to touch a little bit on the Eucharist. We might ask ourselves when we read the Gospels why the Lord was selective in performing miracles. Certainly he healed some blind people, but he didn't heal every blind person. He raised some from the dead, but he didn't raise the majority from the dead. Many who were paralyzed were never healed. It might seem that at times the Lord was unfair, unjust, that he showed favoritism and that he'd performed miracles for some and not for others. How do we understand sort of this mystery of the selectiveness of our Lord performing his miracles? One of the spiritual fathers, he said something very beautiful. He said, a miracle is not good because it brings healing to one person, but because it manifests God to the many. A miracle is not good because it brings healing to one person, but because it manifests God to the many. If a miracle were merely a favor by God to one person, it would be unjust. When something happens miraculously, albeit even to one person, it is God's manifestation in which we all partake that makes the miracle our personal experience. So the point of the miracle was not that the Lord was concerned with healing every blind person or raising every paralyzed person or raising all from the dead, but that he performed miracles in order to manifest himself to everybody. That's why the miracles are always associated with his teaching. He says, I am the light of the world. He wants all of us to believe that he is the light of the world. In order for us to all believe that he is the light of the world, he heals a man who is living in darkness. He opens his eyes and he says, see, I am the light of the world. What's more important, that we believe that he's the light of the world or that we have our eyes opened if we're blind? Well, one is a temporal good, the other is an eternal good. So when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, as he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, in order to prove to all of us that he is truly the resurrection and the life, he raises one from the dead so that we might all come to know and believe that he is the resurrection and the life and all have that spiritual resurrection. So when God performs a miracle, he performs it for, for everybody to come to believe in his words and his testimony and in his person. So what are the reasons why the miracles of Christ were so central to the Gospels? Why, are, why even now in Christianity do we, we speak about miracles, the miracles of, of, of the apostles and the miracles of the saints throughout all the ages? Well, the miracles, in a sense, are part of the, the divine revelation of God. Just as God speaks to us through the prophets in the Old Testament, he comes to us in the person of his son, but he also manifests himself 
through his wondrous acts and deeds, which are miraculous. God wants to communicate himself to us, and he does so in all of these, in all of these ways. And so he enters into the very realities of our lives, our pains, our struggles, the darkness, and he enters into it again through his word, through the sacraments, and of course at the time of his incarnation through his very person, but also through his miracles. And so we know that God is a transcendent God, that he is so other than ourselves. We cannot, we cannot possibly know God in his essence. And yet God in the incarnation becomes so close to us. He becomes so imminent. And this is the mystery of Christianity. The transcendence of God, which we honor and, glory, and glorify, and at the same time, his imminence. He's so close to us. He is, he is closer to us than we are to our very selves. So the miracles are part of that divine revelation. But the miracles are also divine signs. They point us to something. They point us to the power of God. They point us to the capacity of God to do things that we cannot do of ourselves. They point to the destruction of the kingdom of Satan and all of his evil powers. It points to the destruction of death and the resurrection on the, on the last day. It points us to union with God. But most importantly, it's a sign of his love. Love in a, in a very tangible form. Because when, when we see the Lord performing miracles, we see him turning sadness into joy. We see him turning hopelessness and despair into hope. We see him proving for us his great love for mankind. The miracles are a sign of the kingdom, that there is something that the Lord is preparing for us. He says, do not fear, little flock, for it is, it is your, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And so when he casts out demons, he says, if I cast out demons, that is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the miracle is not just about healing one who was demon-possessed. But it is about the sign that this miracle points to the coming of the kingdom. Satan is destroyed. The kingdom of God reigns now. It reigns in the world. It reigns in your hearts. It reigns in the church. The kingdom of God is here. It's present. So the miracles point us to the reality of God's kingdom. But as we see also in the gospel today, the miracles point to what we might call the grace of the sacraments. The Lord took bread today and he gave thanks and he broke and distributed it. And then at the end of the, the Gospel of St. John, he says that the real meaning of this miracle is the grace that will be present in the Eucharist. That what we see on the altar, bread and wine, becomes in reality the very body and the blood of Christ. So the miracles point us to the reality that is behind the veil of the sacraments of the church, the waters of baptism, the oils of consecration and, and anointing, the bread and the wine, the prayers in the hand of the priest who absolves. We might go to a priest and we might confess our sins and we might come out with some psychological relief. But that psychological relief we might get from a counselor, from a psychologist, from a therapist as well. But what's different? The difference is, is the hidden grace 
of absolution, of the, of the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. It's not something that maybe touches us tangibly as much as something that we taste or smell or see or even something that affects us in our emotional state as, as, as much as it is something that is hidden and un, unveiled by the power of faith. So, so ultimately, the miracles point us to, to the need for the faith of the hidden grace that exists in the, in the life of the church. If our eyes were opened by the eyes of, of faith, we would see, as many have seen, we would see the angels who are present with us at this very moment. There are pray, angels in the church at this very moment. There are saints who will join us in the divine liturgy. And many people's eyes have been opened to see this reality. So the sacraments are, are unveiled, are, 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 are encountered when we have those eyes of faith that, um, that the miracles point us to. So what is, what, is, what is the kind of faith that we need in the Eucharist? Certainly the beginning of faith is to believe that it is truly the body and the blood of Christ. Just as the beginning of faith with those whom Christ encountered was he would ask them, do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? I am he who is speaking with you at this very moment, he says to the blind man. So the beginning of faith is to believe that God is he who, who he is, to believe that he exists. But, but the demons know this. They know it better than you and me. So this isn't ultimately the, the level of faith that we need. This, that's what we might call this faith belief. And, and unfortunately, most of our conversations in, in the world today with, with people is a question of to, whether one believes or not, whether one believes in the existence of God or not. And we remain at that level, trying to prove whether God exists or doesn't exist. But for the Christian, this is the, this is the beginning of faith. It is the most fundamental step of faith. But it is, it, is, it is an elementary stage of faith. Faith must lead us to love. St. Paul speaks about faith, hope, and love. And faith and hope are the wings that give love its flight. Faith and hope are the foundations on which love is built. But if we don't go from faith to love, to hope, to trusting in God, then our faith is, is the, the faith of the demons. It doesn't bring us salvation. So when you come to take the Eucharist, it is not enough for you and I to simply say, I believe that this is the body and the blood of Christ. It's a good beginning. But what kind of faith do we want to build upon that is to say, I believe, Lord, that you love me and died for me and gave yourself to me as food, that you might unite yourself with me, the poor sinner that I am, that you might grant me eternal life to reign with you in the kingdom of God forever and ever. I believe this, O Lord. I believe that you are such a love, that you are such a father, that you are such a friend, a brother, that you want to be part of me, to be united with me. I believe this, Lord. And I accept this, and I will live out my part of this covenant to be your son, to be your daughter, to be your friend, to be your brother. During our conference over the last couple of days, I shared a beautiful quote 
about how we might think differently about approaching the Eucharist as that not which pleases us, but that which pleases God. I'll read the quote to you again because it is such a beautiful quote. The spiritual father wrote the following. He said, here is a good thought, which is not often mentioned. Receive communion not only for yourself in order to have this immense grace, but for him, for God, in order to respond to his desire to come down to you, to give him the joy of descending into your heart, which is a heaven for him. If you only knew how the Lord Jesus hungers for you, how he burns with desire to come into your heart, how impatient he is to come down to you, bridging all distance between you and him. The day that you miss Holy Communion is a great disappointment for him. So go to him and respond to his desire. I think this is the kind of faith that will bring the effects of Holy Communion that will transform our lives. To be, perhaps if I can be even so bold to say, building on sort of that language of the Song of Songs. And many of the, the saints and their sort of their mystical understanding of the relationship between Christ and his church and Christ and the human soul says that Holy Communion is the divine kiss between two lovers. It's his kiss to his beloved. That's the faith that we need in Holy Communion. And there's a, a beautiful aspect to this faith which accepts that God has become so humble as to be bread and wine. One of the, uh, the obstacles to faith for many people is, is the incarnation. How is it that God can become man and walk and eat and sleep and have to go to the bathroom and die? For many people, this is too much to accept a God who would descend to such an extent. And for us as Christians, it takes, again, that, that, that veil of, 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 of faith to be unveiled in order for us to believe in the beauty of the Incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us, what could be more beautiful than, than that? But we also have to have faith that God condescends even more than that. If he condescends as God to become man, then he even condescends to become food, to become bread and wine, to become something that we partake of and digest. The humility of God. What could I do with this Eucharist? He gives me the power to stomp on this Eucharist, to throw it to the ground, to throw it to the dogs if I so, if I, if I so choose. He, he humbles himself to such an extent that he makes himself that vulnerable to you and I. And he does it so that he invites us. What is more vulnerable than a, a small child? Who doesn't want to embrace a small child? So Jesus be becomes a small child. He becomes bread and wine so that we are not afraid to approach him, so that we embrace him in his humility and in his vulnerability. This is the faith that we need in the divine Eucharist. But what might be the opposite of a miracle? If a miracle is all of these things, the power of God, the signs that point us to his love and his kingdom and the sacraments. But the reality is that we might have encounters in our own life that seem like they're very much the opposite of miracles, disasters, 
tragedies, catastrophes. Not where life goes from bad to good, but where life goes from good to bad. What do we make of these apparent catastrophes in our life? A true story about a young man in Mexico who became a virtuoso in playing the piano. He became a celebrity and when he was totally consumed with his appearance and with his fame, he was full of vanity. And one day he saw a small black spot on his face. And as the days went by, more and more of those spots appeared. And he received the worst diagnosis that he could ever dream of, which was leprosy. And there was no way to stop it. He tried to kill himself two times and finally he was sent to a house of lepers. There he isolated himself initially until one day he came upon a piano that was in the hall of this uh, leprous colony. And he began to play the piano since he was a virtuoso at the piano. And he realized that all of a sudden everybody started to come and listen to him play the piano. And he saw their despair turn into hope. And he saw their sadness turn into joy. And he saw how comforted all the other lepers were with his playing of the piano. There was especially this 11-year-old boy who was so happy whenever he heard this man play the piano. And this young virtuoso, this man, began to discover the full meaning and purpose of his life. He found a satisfaction and a, and a peace and a joy he had never had before. How to serve these sick people through his gift, through his talent. He would anxiously await every week to play the piano and to cheer everybody up who was in that leprous colony. On his deathbed, his only prayer was, Lord, as you give me new life, do not forget my leprosy. As you give me new life, do not forget my leprosy. It became his crown, his glory, his honor. The greatest thing, the greatest thing in his life became his leprosy. It became the crown of his entrance into the kingdom. So sometimes our suffering, our apparent catastrophes and disasters in life, even in this life we see how God turns them into the greatest glory and crowns for us to prepare us for the kingdom of God. Sometimes they purify us. Sometimes they give us meaning and purpose to our life. Sometimes they convert the hardness of our heart to become compassionate and loving and merciful towards others. In whatever way God uses those apparent disasters in our life, those sufferings and trials in our life, sometimes we see it in this life, but certainly we will see it in the next life. And we should find strength in Christ who healed others but didn't heal himself. He fed others, but as we're going to enter into the season of Lent, but he himself fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. He cured the sick, and yet he was spat upon, mocked. He was whipped and scourged, and he was crucified. He honored others by lifting them up, while he himself was shamed on the cross naked for us. So the, the wounds of Christ, the humility of Christ, gives us strength to endure those apparent disasters in our own life, 
trusting that just as those signs and those wounds and those stripes that were inflicted on the body of Christ became the very means of the salvation of the world, they also for us will become the means of our own salvation. And the miracle today of the feeding of the multitudes, Jesus teaches the apostles and us a very important lesson. He says to them very simply, look, you feed them. And they begin to think outside of the situation they're in, how, how they might feed them. They'll have to find some village or some city. They'll have to find some store that has enough food to feed all of these people. They have to find the money to pay for it. All of these answers are coming from outside. But the Lord will reveal to them and he reveals to us in our own life that the, the solution to the problem is from within because he is present there. He says the solution is actually in front of you. You don't need to go to the towns and villages. You don't need to go buy food. You just need to put it into my hands and I will put it back into your life and it will be multiplied. And so the Lord does the same with us. We have to turn to him. We have to give him all of our our problems, our difficulties, our trials, our sorrows, our sufferings, knowing that the solution to them is present already within us. Present already within us. I want to end with a beautiful um, letter that a, a spiritual father who was recently canonized as a saint in one of the Eastern churches wrote to a lady who was asking him, she was asking him why God allows so much pain and evil in the world. Why does God allow so much pain and evil in the world? I don't think is there any one of us who, who doesn't ask that question from time to time. And this saint who himself had done many miracles and healed many people and had a very intimate relationship with God, listen to his response. He said, I have been a monastic for 60 years in which I have done my best to live a good monastic life, to grow closer to God and struggle against sin, to help my brethren praying for the world, and every day of my life where there is suffering, temptations, spiritual battles against evil, and all kinds of pains. He says, in all of these, I have always asked God why it had to be so. After 60 years of a life with God, and himself healing people through his prayers. And, and, but when he encountered pain in others, he asked, why, Lord, does it have to be so? Why do things have to be this way? And he ended his letter by saying, God has kept his silence. And if God has kept his silence about these things, then so shall I. This is the life of trust, the life of faith, the life of love and hope. He himself accepted the mystery. Even though he was in that relationship with God that extended to other people and manifested the presence of God to other people, yet he himself stood silent before the mystery of God. And he accepted it joyfully. And we have to do the same. And this will give us that peace which surpasses all understanding. May our Lord Jesus Christ who today multiplied the loaves and the fish and fed the people. May he also multiply his grace in our life. May he feed us with his very body and his blood to prove to us his love for us and that we might respond with our love for him and to him be all glory now and ever into the ages of all ages. I mean. Mm -hmm.